you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter. What we're going to be doing is looking at the Word of God and how He speaks to us. And I think something that's important as we approach the Word of God is, is so often we're, we're taught perhaps how to read Scripture, but I think one of the most important things is for us to learn how to let Scripture read us. You know what I mean when I say that? It's easy to read Scripture, isn't it? It's easy to look at passages and look at words and get out meaning and concepts, but it's a whole other thing to put your own life under the, the microscope, so to say, of Scripture and let Scripture really read into your life and bring conviction and bring inspiration as well, but ultimately bring a calling of what God has for you. And, and this is one of the texts this morning that's incredibly intimidating for us to let read our lives. Because this is an incredibly challenging text of what it means to be the people of God. And, and what Peter has been doing as he's writing this letter to the church is explaining and casting a vision for what it means to be the people of God. And today, he's going to say that the people of God are called to holiness. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading 1 Peter 1, 13 to 25. And so you can read along with me here. Peter says this, he says, therefore, now whenever you read therefore, you ask the question, what is it? Therefore, good job. <laughs> and so Peter's basically saying, therefore, in light of everything that I've just said, and, and what he said previous to this is that your identity as a church, you are elect exiles, which means that God has chosen you, but the world has rejected you. And that you're going to go through all these trials and hardship in life, but don't worry about these trials because there's something glorious that is to come. There's an inheritance that is imperishable, meaning that nothing could be taken from you. In other words, God has a plan for you for eternity where all things will be made right, and so you have nothing to fear in this world. You have nothing to be overwhelmed by. You have nothing to live in doubt and worry about. And so Peter says, therefore, in light of all this, this is the type of people you are supposed to be. He says this, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope, how? Fully, set your hope fully, in other words, all your hope comes from this, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, there's another identity marker we're going to talk about. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers." not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. That's the word of the Lord, church. So, what is Peter getting at in this text today? What is he trying to describe and define for the vision of the church? Well, really, what Peter is calling the church to is a calling of holiness. Now, outside of religious circles, the word holy, we don't use much at all in our culture at all, do we? Maybe we say like holy cow and holy smokes, but that's about as far as it goes, right? But, but what does it mean to be holy? When we think of the concept of holiness, in many ways it's such a spiritual word to us, we can at many times learn the sense of the meaning of the word holy. And so what I want us to do, let, let's look at some positive ways that we define holy and maybe, maybe in our culture what are some negative ways that we use this word holy. And so what are some positive things that we think about when we think of the word holiness? A right actions, right? Sort of a morality and ethic, yeah? To be like Jesus, yet yeah, to share in the character of God. Yeah, God-motivated. In other words, conforming to the will of God. So those are some positive aspects. What are some negative ways that we use the word holy in our culture? I'm thinking even beyond the church, too. Yeah, holy cow, holy smokes, right? (laughs) Which don't really mean anything, right? They make no cognitive sense. Yeah, holier than thou, that's a phrase that I was thinking too. When you call someone holier than thou, it sort of means that they're a self-righteous person that thinks they're better than everyone else, right? They act like their morality is higher, but really they struggle with sin just like everyone else. So yeah, holier than thou, that's a big one. Maybe that's the only one. Pardon, George? Yeah, someone who is unholy, which means that they're, they probably have a, a bad character, probably means that they're of ill respute, probably means that they're um, sinful, right? And so unholy is another aspect too. And, and so we, we have all these concepts around this word holy, um, but I think probably the, the most common definition we have goes back to that morality and ethics. Someone who is holy is a moral person. Would you guys say that's sort of the core definition that we have of holy? Which in many senses is true in Scripture. Holiness definitely talks about morality and ethics, but, but the concept of holiness in Scripture is actually much more broad and expansive than that. Because does anyone know a literal translation of holy? Set apart, 
Set apart is the literal understanding of holiness, which, which means that something that is holy is unique, something that is set apart for a purpose. And so, the, the, main, the basic meaning across Scripture for something that are, or someone that is holy it is really just this unique, one-of-a-kind thing that is set apart. That's the concept of holiness in Scripture. And so, how do we get a deeper understanding of this? So, what, what does it mean to call God holy then? What does it mean to call God holy? Um, who, who watched the Bible Project video that I sent out on the newsletter? Any of you on holiness? Okay, well, I'll explain this to you. Well, it, it's this concept the Bible Project used of the holiness of God could be compared to like the sun. When we think the sun of our solar system, is the sun unique in our solar system? Is the sun extremely powerful in our solar system? Is the sun one of a kind in our solar system? Is the, the sun something that we are absolutely dependent upon for life and growth and everything? Without the sun, we'd all be dead right now, right? And, and so there's this comparison that we can look at the sun and say, here's something that's very powerful. Here's something that's one of a kind, that's set apart, that generates all of the life in this world. And yet at the same time, is the sun incredibly dangerous, if you were to go too close to the sun, what would happen to you? You would perish, right? Now, does that make the sun ethically and morally bad? No, it's just the reality of its holiness. It's this unique power, this set-apart power, that to come into the presence of the sun is an incredibly dangerous thing. And so in the same way, when we talk about God as being holy... We're talking about a God that is set apart from us. In other words, it's unique, one of a kind. It's all-powerful. It gives life. It's the source of life for everything. And yet to enter into its presence, into God's presence, would be just as dangerous as entering into the presence of the power of the heat of the sun. Why? Because God Himself is perfect. And anything unholy or anything apart from holiness cannot be in His presence. And so when we talk about holiness, this is the concept that we're talking about. It's all about this set-apartness. It's all about the power that we think of. And so if, if that's holiness, and we as the church are called to be holy as God is holy, which Peter says, quoting Exodus, what does it mean to be holy then? And so I'm going to read a Tim Keller quote here because I think he, he absolutely nails this. He says this. He says, Holiness is an attitude of the heart in which you look at God and you say, use me. In other words, set me apart for your purposes. He says, this is a tremendous clash with modern culture. In modern culture, you're supposed to be independent. Who longs to be independent in their life, right? <laughs> That's us riding our culture, right? This is completely anti-cultural. He says, you're not supposed to let anybody use you. But that's the antithesis to this. A holy person is someone who looks at God and does not say, 
Just give me all the real rules and tell me what they are so I can get to it. No, a holy person is someone who says, I belong to you. I'm set apart for you. You see the differentiation there? You see how often when we think of the word holy, we think of these moral attributes and God gives us this list of character qualities that we sort of check off and say, I'm a holy person because I act in certain ways. But the concept is so much bigger than that. That's part of it. But the concept of holiness for us as the church is to say our entire lives are set apart for the purposes of God. To be holy is to submit ourselves to the will and purposes of God and to seek after what He has for us. And so our holiness corresponds to our very concept of being set apart for the purposes of God. And so how does this play out? Well, let's start looking more into 1 Peter to see how this plays out in our life. Well, first of all, the calling to be holy. Well, Peter begins by saying this. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So what's the problem that Peter's saying there? Part of the problem of us being holy is Peter saying a mindless Christianity. And this is really a cultural reality that we face is part of following Jesus and the hardship that it brings to us is we live in a culture whose values and story is completely different than the story of Scripture and the story of the church, isn't it? We live in a culture that tells us one story how to live, and yet at the same time, we're contrasting that with the story of how God has called us to live. And so there's this consistent challenge and hardship that we're facing. And so what this teaches us is that we have to have an entirely new way of thinking about everything. And Paul says this in the letter to the Church of Rome, you are transformed how? By? By the renewing of your mind. That's how we experience transformation in this life, when our minds are renewed. And so Peter says one of the problems that the church faces is this mindless Christianity. And again, when we look at our culture today, my goodness, it is extremely hard to find deep thought about anything, isn't it? Everything is reactionary. Everything is opinionated. Everything is emotionally charged. We see this mindless anger just ruling our culture right now. And Peter's saying, that's how the world functions and acts, but you as a church, you need to be preparing your minds. You need to be thinking cognitively about what this world is. And so Peter even says, think, prepare your minds for action. And this is how he says, be sober-minded. That's what he calls us to. Now, it's easy for us to read over that and say, okay, I didn't get drunk this week. I'm sober-minded. Check that off and keep reading. But what is Peter getting at here? 
He's getting at something deeper than, than just not being drunk. What, what he's getting at is saying, you have to use your minds in a way that is self-controlled. You have to use your minds opposite of, of living in excess and exaggeration and excessive passion. You have to use your mind moderately and self-controlled. Again, this is... This is so antithetical to our culture because most people today, they just get so animated in their thoughts and their opinions, their minds are just completely out there. There's no self-control. There's no self-control. They just get animated in their passions and their thoughts and defending their arguments, and it just gets out of control. I mean, we could think about all the division and the slander and the accusation in our culture today. It's just horrific, isn't it, church? It's horrific. And Peter says, you as the church cannot be that way. You guys have to be self-controlled. You have to be sober-minded. And so Peter says, get your mind, church. Get your mind right. Prepare yourself for this because it's going to come as a daily battle, an immediate battle that's always been coming at you. And he says, you're going to be tempted to lose your mind just like everyone else in the world is losing their minds right now. But Peter says, no. You're to be holy in your thinking. You're to be set apart in your thinking. You have to be self-controlled in your thinking. And so guard yourself. And, and Peter doesn't just leave it at that. He, he gives us actually extremely practical advice, more practical than we actually realize when we read it. But Peter says, if you want to prepare your minds for action, in other words, all the battles that are going to come at you to be sober-minded, this is what he says. He says, you need to remember something. You need to remember the gospel. And he says, this is what you need to remember. You need to remember to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter's saying, church, if you're struggling with being so overwhelmed in this life and circumstances that your mind is just everywhere, he says, calm down. Remember the hope that is yours in Christ. Remember the hope that is fully in Christ. And I think that's a key point that he brings up, the hope that is fully in Christ. In other words, we know exactly where history is going, don't we, church? We know what the future brings. We know that God is redeeming and reconciling all of creation. We, we know that our hope is set before that. We have this confidence. We know exactly what's going on. So all the circumstances in the present were never going to overwhelm us or, or confuse us because we know what is set before us. And the problem that comes when, when we stop being sober-minded, when we stop guarding our minds, is when our hope isn't fully in Jesus, but some of our hope is found in other things. That's where complication comes, doesn't it? I mean, we're, we're heading into an election tomorrow, and I hope you all get out and vote. But at the end of the day, is the election tomorrow our hope? No. 
No, our, our hope is fully in Jesus Christ. I, I mean, even if we, we elected the party that we wanted, I mean, probably in five, ten years now, it's going to change anyway. And we think sooner or later, all these political parties are going to cease to exist. In fact, even the nation of Canada one day will cease to exist. And so if we have any sense of hope there, we are just fooling ourselves and we are preparing our minds not to be sober, but to be overwhelmed by circumstances. And so our minds are right when we are, our hope is set fully on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that's how we practice holiness, is being set apart in the way that we think, in the way that we react. And so what else does Peter say about our holiness? Well, the next thing he brings up is that we are to be holy in our behavior then. He says, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He's quoting the Old Testament there. And he says, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, in other ways, the way that you act, conduct yourselves with fear. Not, not a terror fear, but a reverence before God, a submission of life before God throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed, what were you ransomed from? From the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And what Peter is saying here is that you haven't just been saved from something in life. Yes, we are saved from our sin. Yes, we are saved from our guilt. Yes, we are saved from our shame. Yes, we are saved from all these sins in our life. Jesus died on the cross so that we could find freedom from that. But Peter said, you're not just saved from something. You're actually saved for something. You're saved so that you can live in light of this, and you're called not just to be saved, but you're called to be sanctified. And, and so let me read just a few extra scriptures just to get that in our minds. It says, Christ died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Jesus loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for Himself a people for His own possessions who are zealous for good works. And so all these passages summarize this reality that, again, we're not just saved from something, we are saved for something. 
The salvation that we experience in Jesus transforms us and changes us, and our call to be holy is really summarizing everything that God has done, everything that Christ has done for us. And we often miss this in the church, and there's a great tragedy that comes from this. There's a great missing of the gospel that comes from this because so many people in the church don't experience freedom because they can only look at what Christ has done for them in the past. They only see what Christ has saved them from, and they don't realize that Christ has saved them for something, to transform them, to offer the power over sin. See, we, we realize that Jesus had not just died to take away our guilt and our shame and our sin, but Jesus has come to break the power of sin in our lives completely. Amen, church? That, that's our only hope and transformation is that Jesus has overcome that power in our lives. And, and so this is even more so what Peter says. I love how he says this. You're not just saved from, you're saved for. But this is what he says we're also saved from. He says, you were saved from or ransomed from futility. And he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Isn't that interesting? Um, who has a past in their family that they don't want to live out again? <laughs> Who sees patterns of sin and rebellion and hardship and pain all through their past generations, all through their family lines that you just wish wouldn't have any power over you? And, and what Peter is saying here is the power of the gospel means that whatever, whatever culture or family or whatever you were raised up in and through, whatever influence that had over you, negatively, can be eradicated with the power of Jesus. That you are no longer enslaved to the ways of your forefathers and foremothers and culture that came before you, but you can live an entirely set-apart, holy life in Christ. And so there's this beautiful reality that comes from that. It means it, it doesn't matter all the mistakes that your parents made raising you. It doesn't matter the, the culture in Alberta or wherever you came from, what they taught you and trained you about culture and society and how to live. It doesn't matter anymore because now we can come to God and say, we are set apart for your purposes and you teach us and train us how to live in a, ant or a cross-cultural way. And so we're ransomed. We're, we're freed from these futile ways. Now, the question then is, is how does this happen? Because we are incredibly influenced by our parents, aren't we? We are incredibly influenced by our family. We are incredibly influenced by our family of origin. Our forefathers were incredibly influenced by the culture and society around us. We're incredibly influenced by our friends. All these things dramatically have an impact on our lives. And so, what is our hope in this? Well, this is where throughout history the, the church has done a spiritual practice called self-examination. Has anyone heard of this spiritual practice before? I mean, we could go back to uh, King David to talk about this reality. But the practice of self-examination is really this practice that says, God, I want to be holy. 
And I know that a lot of my behavior is not holy. A lot of it is conforming to the culture. A lot of it is conforming to the society. A lot of it is simply repeating the past before me. But I want to be set apart. I, I want to think differently. And so self-examination is the spiritual practice that, that challenges us to really take an objective look at our spiritual condition and analyze it and critique it and allow the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. And, and this is a, a beautiful practice because so often in this life, um, we want to look at everyone else except for us, don't we? We want to look at the behavior of everyone else. We want to point out the flaws. We want to point out what they have done. We want to point out their mistakes. We want to point out how they're wrong. And yet Scripture says, wait a second, you need to look at yourself. You need to examine yourself. You need to be holy in your behavior. Your, your job isn't to judge everyone. Who's, whose job is it to judge everyone, church? God, Jesus, right? You need to examine your own behavior. And, and even Jesus says, wait a second, why are you looking the speck of sawdust in your eye when, or in your brother's eye when what's in your eye? A massive log is in your eye. In other words, you are so caught up in the sins of others that you're neglecting to look at the sins of yourself. And so the way we push back against that, because all of us have that temptation, don't we? All of us have that temptation, and the way we push back against that is, is self-examination. And so what are practices of self-examination that you have in your life? Because if you don't have any, there, there needs to be something. There needs to be some point of your day or your week where you come before God and just say, God, is my behavior holy before you? Am I actually living as a set-apart person, bringing honor and glory to your name? And there, there's many simple ways to do that. So if you have nothing at this point, I'll just give you something really simple. It could be as simple as just each evening, maybe before your head hits the pillow to go to sleep, you, you just sit down and you mentally review your day you review it in the sense of how did I react to certain situations? Did I feel periods of anger? Did I feel periods of worry? Did I feel periods of where I reacted harshly against someone or was overly critical? And just ask God and examine those things and pray to Him and begin to analyze, well, why did I burst out in anger or why was I critical there? And what you're doing is self-examination. You're practicing this desire to be holy. You're practicing this realization that I have defects of character that need to be dealt with, that need to be healed, that need to be brought under the scope of holiness. And so this is a, a spiritual practice that, that must be constant and consistent in our life. So if there's any homework I give you this week, practice spiritual examination self-examination of where you are at and the holiness that God has called you to. And, and so I want to bring out one more thing with Peter here. He, he brings up something that I find fascinating in this passage because he defines how our holiness is supposed to look like. 
And in verse 14, he gives this identity point. He says, you're supposed to be holy as what? As obedient children. As obedient children. Now, all of us parents love that passage, right? Who loves an obedient child? <laughs> we say yes and amen to that. But, but there's something going on here that Jesus is teaching us about our identity. We realize that there's this premise that, yes, God is our Father. We are His children. We have this responsibility to be obedient to Him. But I want to ask you the question, what comes first in a child's life, birth or obedience? Birth, right? <laughs> now, that may not seem insignificant, but it has everything to do with our motives of our obedience to God. Because if it's our birth, and the Scriptures talk about how we are born again into a living hope. Peter loves the language of being born again into the family of God. It means we are birthed into the family of God. Which means that does our obedience have anything to do with how much God loves us and accepts us? No. Which means that it has nothing to do with our motivation. Which means that our very identity is set as children, as beloved, as adopted, as crying out, I have a father. We, we have this acceptance in God before we do anything for Him. And, and so there's this identity that marks that comes before that, which means that we don't have to prove our worth and our value. We, we don't have to prove what we can do for God. Our identity is already secure in Him. That's a ba big weight lifted off our shoulders, isn't it? If, if Peter said, you're supposed to be obedient slaves, that changes the whole dynamic because now we're trying to work and earn towards God's favor and prove our value, prove our worth to Him. But in the end, the motivation becomes all skewed and distorted because everything we're doing for God is for acceptance and value and love. And the gospel says, no, that comes first. And obedience is motivated out of that acceptance and love and the gift. And so the holiness comes from that motivation. So therefore, if we are accepted, if we are loved, if we are valued, if we are part of the family, then out of that motivation, we function as obedient children, as holy. Now, this means that we are obedient, which means that we submit our will to God's. And that means that we come before God on a daily basis and we confess everything that we want to live for, what we want to do, and submit to the purposes of God. And so this is why, why Jesus, when He taught us to pray, and I hope you pray this on a daily basis as well, but our, our Father in heaven, which means that first of all, we are born into God's family, we are part of the family, that's our identity, that's our value, that's our worth, we are family our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, then what? Your kingdom come, your will be done. And the, the, the reason why we pray that daily is because so often in this life, what are we doing? We're building our own kingdoms, we're living for our own purposes, 
and we're neglecting everything that God has for us. And so our prayer then of obedience becomes, no, I confess my desire to build my own kingdom. I confess my desire to take control over my own life, and I submit those desires to you, and I live in obedience to you. And here's what this obedience looks like. This is how Peter describes this obedience. Verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls... That sounds freeing, amen, church? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. And so what does obedience look like? It looks like love. It's not that complicated, is it, church? It's not that complicated at all, yet how often do we mess this up so drastically? Every day, right? And and Peter's just reminding us, he says, you know what your obedience to God looks like? You know what holiness looks like in your life? It's when you actually love people. When you actually display love to others that is sincere, that is honest, that is from the heart, that is not trying to get anything from others, but simply because you love them. And so Peter says, this is what it looks like. And what's crazy to me is is everything that's going on in our world right now, all the chaos, all all the division, all the antagonism from different perspectives and different opinions, do you know what holiness looks like in this season? It looks like love. looks like grace. looks like mercy. And so we realize that, yes, people are hurting everywhere, and we, we ask the question, well, what do they ultimately need? Well, they need love, and, and how do they get that love? Well, Peter says this. He says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. How do we experience more God's love in our life? How do we display more of God's love in our life? Is reading His Word, being conformed to His Word. And he says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers falls. What is that basically telling us? Everything dies. <laughs> You're going to die, cultures and societies die, culture, everything dies, right? But the word of the Lord remains for how long? Forever. And, and Peter's writing this in a context. He's writing this from Rome, the great Roman Empire. Does the great Roman Empire exist today? No. And we read this in our context and we say, you know what? Is our culture and society going to exist forever? Everything that we put our hope in apart from Christ, even our own lives, is like grass that fades away. The only thing that has any lasting change and transformation in this world is the Word of God. And think about this historically even. Think about how long... The scriptures have lasted through civilizations and cultures and societies, how everything throughout history has a life and a death, and yet the Word of God 
has lasted generations upon generations upon generations. There's a beauty to that, isn't there? And so we submit our lives to that so that the world can be transformed. And so what do we do? Let me, let me close our conversation together. What do we do? How, how do we live as holy people then? Well, first of all, the, the larger meaning of holy is that we now as the church, to be holy means that we are set apart. To be set apart means that you're different. You are exiles, right? And so how does that set apartness look like? Well, well Peter says, first of all, it's, it's looking like keeping your minds prepared, being sober-minded as the world around you is chaos, as there's strife, as there's antagonism, as there's slander and accusations. What do we do? We keep our minds sober. We study the Word. We submit our minds to the Word. We live in newness of life by living and abiding in the Word of God. That's the reality of what we do to keep our minds prepared. How else do we live a holy life? Well, we live a life of self-examination where we say, God, how do I conform my behaviors to your purposes, to your will, so that I'm no longer living for myself but for others? And, and thirdly, we, we live to love others deeply and sincerely. A, a life of holiness is a life of love. See, Jesus says that the world will, will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. Isn't that interesting? The, the world doesn't know we are disciples by all these things that we focus on in this life. The world will know you are my disciples by how well you love one another. In other words, this now becomes um, an apologetic to the world around us. Now, I, I spent so much of my time in graduate studies studying philosophy and science and history, all for the purposes of apologetics, learning how to defend my faith, learning how to make uh, Christianity such a viable um, option, if not the best option, which I believe it to be in the marketplace of ideas in this world. And, and there's so many things that logically, historically, scientifically, philosophically that could be argued for the existence of God and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what I've realized in this season is, do you know what the greatest apologetic in the church is right now? Just that we would love each other that our holiness would actually shine through, that we would actually be set apart from the culture and the world around us so people see the difference. That's the difference maker. And then finally, we, we keep our hope fixed on the Word. Why? Because the Word is eternal. The Word is forever. Our hope isn't in a political party right? That every party will one day end. Our hope isn't even coming out of the pandemic. I know we had such drastic news this past week. We're doing this all over again, but is our hope to come out of the pandemic? No. Virus, sickness, pandemics will continue for the rest of humanity, won't they? 
Our hope isn't even on making Canada what we think it should be because one day this country will cease to exist. Our, our hope isn't on anything other than fully in Jesus Christ, the Word of God that will last forever. Let's pray to that extent. Gracious Father, You have called us to be holy as You are holy. And Lord, it's such a struggle for us to be people who truly live set apart. So often our minds are simply imitations of the culture and society around us. We get so overwhelmed in circumstances. We easily turn to anger and hatred and accusation and judgment. And so we pray that you would renew our minds by the power of your Spirit. Lord, we also look at our behavior. And so often our behavior is simply an imitation of what we've learned from the past, sins of the family, sins of the culture, sins of society. And yet, Lord, you have promised us that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can renew us. And so when we submit and live in obedience to your will and to your purposes, that the power of what we have learned by the sins of those who have went before us are no longer there. And so we pray that you would give us a heart of self-examination to conform to the people that you have called us to be people of love, a people of peace, a people of patience. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning. That even as you speak to us this morning, we pray that we would not simply be people who read your word, but allow your word to read us. In other words, to not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. May your words transform us and convict us to be the people that you have called us to be, a people who are holy just as you are holy. Empower us by your Spirit. Without you, we are hopeless. Work with us. Transform us so that your name will be glorified among us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.